This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello i'm matt Chorley. this is the red box podcast featuring the best of my times radio show monday to thursday 10 till 1 i should just let you know i'm on holiday next week so i'm handing over the keys of the radio show and the podcast to danny finkelstein uh, who you'll know from the Times. He's been on the podcast almost as much as me. Uh, so you will be in safe hands. Uh, just a reminder, if you want to come on and do the quiz, can you get to number 10, our daily general knowledge quiz where there's no prize and only your pride at stake. Uh, but if you want to come on and have a go at that and take a place in our mid-morning cabinet, email studio at times.radio and we'll get you on the radio very soon. Now then, it's been two months since the government stopped doing the daily press conferences. Uh, a month ago, we convened our own. Next slide, please. And this month, it is back. So this is us taking a look at the latest data on coronavirus. And is there any good news in sight? Now then, we've opened up the economy. Schools are going back, all being well, uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, some people, though not me, uh, have made it onto a foreign holiday. But how are we actually doing at tackling the coronavirus? It's time for this. Next slide, please. 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 There we go. Two months ago, they stopped doing those press conferences. We updated you a month ago with our very own version of next slide, please. And we thought, well, one month on, we'd go back and look at the data and see what's happening and also get an update on the on the health and the science as well. So once again, uh, Tom Calver has updated the data for us. Uh, he'll be here in just a moment. And we've got our very own Patrick Valance and Jenny Harris. Yes, science editor Tom Whipple and health correspondent Kat Lay. Uh, they'll be uh, along uh, after we've taken a look at the data to uh, update us on what it all means. Uh, but first of all, um, just remind me again, Pretty, how many days has it been since the last press conference from the Prime, from the Prime Minister? 300,034, 974,000. Yeah, thank you, Pretty. Um, that's uh, totally cleared it all up. Right then, uh, let's get down to this. Tom Calvert joins me in the studio. Uh, morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, from the Times uh, data team. So you're going to talk us through the slides. If you want to play along at home, uh, what with uh, radio not being a visual medium, then I've just tweeted all of the slides so you can take a look at the slides as we talk them along. So, uh, Tom, it's over to you. Thank you. Uh, charts on radio. Who'd, uh, who'd have thought it, eh? Um, so we're going to start with the one on transport. So uh, this, this slide was used to show how much we're all moving around. Uh, and remember, we had those big drop-offs at the start of uh, at the end of March, start of April, when transport use was right down by about 80%. 
uh, across all different forms. Um, now, cars and lorries are basically back up to normal levels, uh, around about 100% of what they were at the start of March. Um, but the cycling revolution does continue, uh, not quite at its previous pace. Uh, it was up about 300% in May. Uh, overall, now it's around about 50% uh, higher than it was pre-lockdown. And of course, this fluctuates quite a lot uh, with the weather. It's very up and down. And that's literally just to whether or not it's a nice day out. Uh, it looks that way, yes. I mean, there'll be other factors, like whether it's a weekend or not. But uh, but broadly speaking, yes, that, that does fluctuate uh, much more based on, on the weather. Um, now, people are still shunning public transport. You know, it's been, uh, I've lost count of the months, but um, it's, you know, uh, but all the other transport methods are up to 100%. Bus use is still around 40%. Train use down about, it's about 30% of what it used to be. And these figures haven't really moved that much in a month. Um, could this be the new norm? Who knows? Um, but it does look like train companies especially have a lot of work to do to persuade people to get back on them. So next up, we're going to look at Tom, testing. Tom, 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 Tom. Oh, you've, sorry. You've got to do next slide, I know. please. <laughs> <clears throat> next slide, please. Very good. Very good. <laughs> so this is this is testing. That's right. Uh, so this is, uh, yes, everyone's favourite topic. Um, there were 163,010 tests uh, reported yesterday, uh, taking the total to ju just shy of 15 million. Uh, now, that's tests, not people tested. So uh, for every uh, person tested, there may be two, three, four people, uh, four tests actually happening for each person. And then the government stopped publishing figures on how many people are actually being tested. So we don't know that. Um, the government has been using uh, in the past few months uh, a measure of testing capacity. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, this is basically how many they could, in theory, test uh, based on the resources and staffing available. Um, and on the last count, this was more than 326,000. So this suggests the UK is actually only testing about half the people it could have. Um, and of course, the government used this measure of, of testing capacity to say it had reached its target of 200,000 tests uh, by the end of May. But in reality, it only actually tested 200,000 people uh, on July 31st. Uh, so it's just one of those uh, weird sort of... Uh, 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 things with the data that we have to sort of be wary of, I suppose. And there's also the question, and we can talk to uh, Tom and Kat about this, but uh, when when people talk about a rise in cases, obviously if you're testing more people, it's likely that you're going to pick, pick up more. Yes, I mean, that brings us on uh, very nicely to uh, the next slide. I'll do it properly this time. Uh, next slide, please. <laughs> very good, very good. So this slide is on cases. Um, now, last time we spoke, there'd been a very clear downward trend from uh, starting in May throughout June, uh, to the start of July, where cases uh, fell pretty quickly. So there are about 6,000 a day reported in uh, in early May. Now that that was down to about a few hundred. However, since July the 5th, uh, coincidentally the day after the pubs reopened, the number of cases has started to rise again. So yesterday, uh, 812 people tested positive for COVID-19. So in the past week, that number averages about uh, just over 1,000. Uh, so in the week the pubs reopened, that number is about 550. So cases have risen about 90% in this sort of month and a half period. Now, yes, as you say, some will say that it's due to an increase in testing. Um, this is partially true, but only partially. So pillar one and two tests, those are the ones that actually lead to cases. They've risen by 70%. So it doesn't quite explain the 90% increase in the number of cases. So we, we do think that the uh, overall number of cases has genuinely increased. Um, now, of course, the government for the past two months has been playing this sort of whack-a-mole approach of trying to target local outbreaks as they happen. So um, if we do do a bit of maths here, so the UK average is about 11 weekly cases per 100,000 people. 
So some parts of the country still have much higher rates than this. So Manchester has about 42. Uh, Leicester remains stubbornly high at 44. Remember Leicester, the first place to go into local lockdown. Uh, Oldham, 74 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, and Black and Northampton as well, which doesn't currently have any restrictions, is reporting about 100, uh, 120 cases per 100,000 people uh, after, of course, 300 people tested positive at an MS supplier uh, last week. So the government is still trying to tackle these local outbreaks uh, as they happen. Is it possible as well that those where there are an increase in cases that they are more localised? One of the things that we saw, particularly in the sort of international capacities as well, is that the UK's problem in March was that it was everywhere. It wasn't in a particular region. And if they can concentrate on that whack-a-mole strategy, it might stop it becoming a sort of blanket that's that's completely true. Yeah. Um, of course, in, if we look around Europe, um, it, it, the, you know, it, it, the very start of the outbreak in Italy, for example, it was very concentrated in the north. That didn't happen in the UK in the first wave. It was kind of spread everywhere. Um, what the government now is trying to do is to keep these local outbreaks local. Um, and it remains to be seen if it managed to do that. Um, next slide, please. Very good. So this is uh, people in hospitals. That's right. So uh, some good news now. So while we have seen a rise in uh, cases, uh, the number of people in hospital remains quite low. Uh, So uh, just under 900 people are currently in hospital with with COVID-19. This is down from a height of uh, about uh, uh, 20,000 at the start of April. Uh, And of those people, uh, 73 are on ventilator beds. So that's down from uh, 3,300 in early April. you're probably wondering why has the number of cases risen uh, and this hasn't uh, equaled a rise in hospitalised uh, patients. Uh, one theory could be that with increased testing, we're catching more young people with COVID who are, are more likely to, to survive it and also not need hospital treatment. Um, others suggest that the virus has become uh, more contagious but less deadly, so has actually mutated into this different strain. Um, so, so scientists are going to keep monitoring that uh, in the weeks ahead. Um, A quick look at deaths. Um, So another 16 were reported yesterday. So this brings the total to 41,397. Now, uh, attentive listeners will remember that this is actually lower than the last month's figure when we uh, when we last spoke. Um, So last time we we talked about how some think we might be overcounting deaths. Um, So the government now agrees with this and has revised down the death toll by about 5,000. So now for someone to be a a COVID death in the eyes of the government, they have to have had a positive test within 28 days of of dying. Um, But that's not the only way of counting COVID deaths, as we know. So the ONS suggests uh, about 56,000 people have died. And that's where COVID was mentioned on the death certificate. Uh, While the number of excess deaths, so that's the number of people who have died, um, uh, that's relative to how many people normally die at this time of year that's about 64,000 but of course that that counts loads of people who don't necessarily die of COVID itself so all these different measures once again proving that COVID data is never simple. (laughs) And one final slide on uh, how we compare to other countries. Yes so next slide please. So so what a lot of people want to know is where's safe to go on holiday? Um, And the answer is, well, compared to the UK, not many places in Europe. Uh, The UK average, as we said, is about 11 weekly cases per 100,000 people. Um, So it's said that the government has this benchmark of about 20 weekly cases per 100,000. And nearly half of Europe uh, is actually over uh, that level. So the UK is on 11, Ireland's on 14, Greece on 15, France, of course, uh, there was a massive scramble to uh, to get home uh, by Brits abroad there. Uh, that's now on 26 cases per 100,000. Croatia, which uh, I think is still on the no quarantine list, uh, has 27 cases per 100,000. And right at the top, Spain is reporting 80. 
uh, cases per 100,000. So an infection rate more than seven times higher than the UK. Now, of course, it's worth remembering that uh, the, like, like the UK in Spain, there are these very localised areas like Barcelona and Catalonia that, that have much higher levels than this. Um, but, um, it, you know, it, basically the government is treating these countries all as one unit. So that's why we can't we can't effectively we can't travel there. And, and at the other end, uh, Italy, of course, once the epicenter of coronavirus in Europe, um, that's down to six cases per 100,000 people. So so about half the UK rate. Uh, so we're looking at a very different picture to the one back in April. So the con- best countries to go to Latvia with one case per 100,000 people, Hungary with two, Estonia with two, Finland with two. And like you said, Italy and also Slovakia with uh, just six. So they're the countries that if you are thinking of going abroad and not braving the, the weather here, um, then uh, then uh, those are the countries to look at. As ever, thanks. Uh, that was Tom Calvert from the Times data team talking us through the slides. If you want to see the slides we were just talking about, you can go to my um, pay, uh, my account on Twitter, at Matt Jolly on Twitter, and take a look at those. Coming up next, we speak to Tom Whipple and Kat Lay, our very own Patrick Valance and Jenny Harris. They're going to unpack the data and give us the latest here on Times Radio. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Yes, it's next slide, please, where we update the data that we used to get from the Doe's Downing Street press conferences, which stopped two months ago now. We did this last month and updated the data. Uh, Tom Calvers just talked us through the latest data. Like I said, you can see those slides uh, on my Twitter account, at Matt Jolly on Twitter. Uh, But to sort of unpack it all and update us on where we are on the latest health and science developments, our very own Jenny Harris and Patrick Valance. Uh, We've got uh, the Times Health correspondent, Kat Lay. Morning, Kat. Good morning. And uh, the Times science editor and self-styled our very own Patrick Valance, Tom Whipple. Morning, Tom. <laughs> self-styled, no less. Uh, good morning. Well, you, you, made some, you made some claim to being the Patrick Valance because he was more sort of suave and sophisticated, uh, I seem to remember, uh, last, last month. <laughs> he is. He, he's, yeah, he's the glamour puss, I think. Was <laughs> <person, yes. laughs> 
And, <laughs> and you, you by, um, by implication, consider yourself the glamour of the Times newsroom, which we appreciate. Um, so, uh, Kat, just uh, update us on where we are. Um, we've obviously just gone through the, the data there. Can you shed any light on what Tom was just saying about how we are seeing an increase in cases? It does seem to be more than just the fact there's more testing. But the number of people in hospital uh, with uh, coronavirus still seems to be coming uh, relatively low and, and coming down. So do we know why that might be happening? Uh, it is sort of the, the key question that everyone is trying to answer. And there's probably quite a few different things going on. Um, one part of it is that the people who are currently getting coronavirus seem to be slightly younger than people who were getting it at the height of the outbreak. Uh, and we know younger people tend to be affected slightly less severely. Um, there could be other things at play. It could be that the warmer weather is helping. Um, it, it's quite a key question for doctors to answer, particularly as we sort of look ahead to winter, which is what is really worrying health officials is what are we going to see when we enter those colder months when the NHS tends to have its annual winter crisis anyway. And is it right that the, the, the sort of the treatments that are now available and the way that if you did end up in hospital uh, with coronavirus, you, the way you are treated now very different to say back in March or April? We've learned so much about the virus over the course of the outbreak and you're absolutely right. We now have treatments available that we know work that you know when the virus was first identified we didn't know what would or wouldn't work so you've had um things via the the recovery trial which looked at which treatments actually helped actually didn't help we know um dexamethasone which did help it does help people who are hospitalized with very severe disease um we know it looks as if giving patients uh convalescent plasma which is donated by people who've already survived oh well, i think we've, we've slightly lost cat there we'll um, we'll try and get her back let's bring tom whipple in our science editor uh, it, what do we know now about the virus that we didn't know before and is that helping is it is, is, is it mutating uh is it um getting it... nicer less nice <laughs> nicer virus. Um, I think so. Some suggested that. So the the general, if you were to talk, talk very generally about viruses, you'd say the general evolutionary pressure on a virus is to get less severe. So a, a virus has no interest at all in killing you. Um, it, may, it, might, it might seem weird to say this. This is not a malevolent thing. It very much hopes for your survival. If you die, the virus dies. So there's, there is an evolutionary pressure for the viruses to get less severe. Um, but most virologists I've spoken to have said this is too soon for this to happen. It's not a. It's already not a severe enough virus that really this is pertinent. Um, I think more likely to explain this, there, there seem, does seem to be this definite trend that uh, people the. the Fatality rate seems to be dropping, fewer people are ending up in hospital. I've been speaking to people about this this week. Um, there are many competing explanations, probably all of which have something to play. So yes, we are getting better at treating it. We understand how it works. We have drugs that work, or a drug that works. Um, it's probable that a younger population is getting it, or at least being tested and found out, um, but also that younger people are just getting bored of the social distancing. 
It's also possible that the social distancing that we have um, and the fact that, as we saw in the slide, far fewer people are going on things like tube trains means that when people catch it, they're getting more of a glancing blow. The extent to which you are sitting, breathing in viral particles for someone continually versus just catching it, a, a few of them, is, I mean, it, it, it's like standing in the trenches and having a thousand people try and storm you rather than a hundred. Your body is better at fighting it off, um, better at catching it early and preventing it from becoming bad. So that might also explain why it seems to be less severe. But let's not, not forget, though, that... Uh, you know, part of this is going to be something as simple as lag. If we're picking up a whole load of cases now, well, it would take two weeks before these people got to the stage where they were severely ill in hospital anyway. So let's wait and see before we congratulate ourselves. So I, I didn't realise that. I thought that you, once you got, you, you know, like being pregnant, you couldn't be a little bit coronavirusy. You know, once you, you only <laughs> needed a bit and then, you know, you, you'd got it. But actually the amount that you get and uh, does affect how seriously ill you might end up being. Yeah, it's, so it's, yes, I mean, it feels like it should be a binary thing, either it's infected a cell or not infected a cell. Um, but your immune system has lots of different wings to it, and there's the innate immune system that fights stuff off when it arrives. This is before you've developed the specific antibodies, and that can be overwhelmed. If you've got lots of virus particles infecting lots of cells, churning out lots of stuff, then it it makes it far less likely you're going to be able to fight it off. So, yes, I mean, this is one of the things I've been learning covering virology in my, my very quick crash course in virology is that you would assume it is a binary thing, that it is. It either gets a foothold or doesn't. Um, but that's, that's not the case. There are degrees in between. Cat uh, lays back, I think, on the line. Kat, in playing the role of uh, Jenny Harris, Deputy uh, Chief Medical Officer, um, how is the NHS uh, right now? And, you know, the, the warnings of a winter crisis get earlier and earlier. It's normally around this time we talk about a winter crisis coming, even without coronavirus. So what sort of state is the NHS in um, at the moment? It's still not back up to full speed. Um, Simon Stevens, Sir Simon Stevens, who is the head of uh, the NHS in England, has sort of instructed hospital bosses that he wants them to be back up to 100% capacity in a lot of areas over the next couple of months. Uh, what we're hearing from hospital chiefs is that that is quite an optimistic ask. Um, but you've got this backlog of people who have been unable to be treated over the past few months who need treatment. You've still got more people developing illnesses that need treatment. Uh, so it's quite urgent, really, to get as much of those services uh, back in play as possible. Um, we heard this week that they're planning to expand again the, the use of the private sector to tackle some of those waiting lists. And uh, presumably we'll end up possibly seeing some of those long-term effects start feeding through into the, the excess deaths, that those, the excess deaths, the, the, the number of deaths above what we'd normally expect as a five-year average. Obviously they went up um, at the height of the, the pandemic, but the impact of people who haven't had cancer treatment, haven't kept up to date on uh, tests and you know going to the doctor when they've had concerns about things, that could take quite a while to feed through, couldn't it? Uh, yes, it's something we'll probably be seeing for a number of years now uh, because that delayed cancer diagnosis we know it can take sort of a year 18 months for people to kind of 
go back with their concerns. So it's not something that's going to be over and done with quickly. Um, one interesting thing at the moment is that although excess deaths are sort of back below average, so we're, we're seeing the more or less the number of deaths we'd normally expect to see at this time of year, we're seeing still seeing more deaths at home than normal, uh, whereas deaths in hospital are lower than usual. And we don't know exactly why that is. We don't know if it is people choosing to die at home, people who were already terminally ill uh, and have chosen to die at home and avoid hospital, which in many ways might be a good thing, giving people sort of more of the, the kind of good death uh, that they want. Or it could be people who needed hospital treatment and stayed away for whatever reason. Yeah, and presumably they're now advised to, to go back to the NHS, um, you know, and, and if you do have health concerns, contact, you know, dial 999 or, or contact your doctor. Oh, that's very much the message, yes. The NHS is open for business and, and they want to see anyone who's got a health concern. Uh, and finally, Tom, I suppose we should ask about a vaccine. Um, there's been lots of, sort of stories uh, knocking around this week that, that Australia have bought some of the British uh, one from the University of Oxford, China setting out how much they're going to charge people for a coronavirus vaccine by the end of the year, Russia last week saying they'd got one. Uh, has anyone got one that actually works yet? Um, well, I mean, we, we don't know is, is, is the answer. We have, we have lots of vaccines that are in inverted commas, ready, and they're being tried out on people. But the point of trying them out on people is we just don't know if they work. Um, there was, um, and this, this is the bit to the stage in the process that Russia has decided to do away with. Um, there, there was relatively good news from a fishing boat in Seattle this week. Um, so uh, this fishing boat went out and it uh, turned out there was someone on board infected. Um, and he managed to infect 100 other people in this crew of 120. Um, three who did not get affected were three who were tested beforehand and were discovered to have strong neutralising antibodies for uh, coronavirus. The reason this is interesting is because that is precisely the end point of the phase one and two trials that we've already had for vaccines. So they showed that you could make strong neutralising antibodies for coronavirus. What we didn't know is whether that actually went on to imply protective immunity. It appears from this uh, fishing boat in Seattle that it does. It was uh, none of those who had them were infected despite a massive outbreak. Um, so yes, the, the, the vaccines are plodding on and people keep on asking what the progress is and the annoying thing is that science moves at least in a pandemic sense of everything else moving fast science still moves at a relatively slow pace and we're not going to know for a few months whether any of these actually work and actually pass the final stage in trials yeah um science moving at a slower pace than newsroom news desks would necessarily uh, <laughs> would necessarily like uh, well that's really interesting the uh, the, the it turns out yeah a, a boat in seattle uh, may well hold the key to us really good to speak to you as ever our very own chief scientific advisor tom whipple otherwise known as the times uh, science editor and uh, I've taken the role of deputy chief medical officer uh, cat lay uh, also from the times uh, filling us in on uh, on the latest data and the latest uh, information on coronavirus. And I think we'll probably do that again next month to uh, see where we are on the data. If you want to see all of those slides, you can do that. Go to my um, uh, Twitter page, at Matt Chorley on Twitter, and you can see all the slides we were talking about there with Tom Calver. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.